Romans, Chapter 8 Matthew Henry's Commentary on the Whole Bible An Exposition, with Practical Observations, of The Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans Chapter 8 The Apostle, having fully explained the doctrine of justification and pressed the necessity of sanctification, in this chapter applies himself to the consolation of the Lord's people. Ministers are helpers of the joy of the saints. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, so runs our commission, Isaiah 40 verse 1. It is the will of God that his people should be a comforted people. And we have here such a draft of the gospel charter, such a display of the unspeakable privileges of true believers, as may furnish us with abundant matter for joy and peace in believing, that by all these immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Many of the people of God have, accordingly, found this chapter a wellspring of comfort to their souls, living and dying, and have sucked and been satisfied from these breasts of consolation, and with joy drawn water out of these wells of salvation. There are three things in this chapter. 1. The particular instances of Christians' privileges, verses 1 to 28. 2. The ground thereof laid in predestination, verses 29, 30. 3. Of the apostles' triumph herein, in the name of all the saints, verses 31 to 39. Romans 8 verses 1 to 9. 1. The apostle here begins with one signal privilege of true Christians, and describes the character of those to whom it belongs, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, verse 1. This is his triumph after that melancholy complaint and conflict in the foregoing chapter sin remaining, disturbing, vexing, but, blessed be God, not ruining. The complaint he takes to himself, but humbly transfers the comfort with himself to all true believers, who are all interested in it. 1. It is the unspeakable privilege and comfort of all those that are in Christ Jesus that there is therefore now no condemnation to them. He does not say, there is no accusation against them, for this there is, but the accusation is thrown out, and the indictment quashed. He does not say, there is nothing in them that deserves condemnation, for this there is, and they see it, and own it, and mourn over it, and condemn themselves for it, but it shall not be their ruin. He does not say, there is no cross, no affliction to them or no displeasure in the affliction, for this there may be, but no condemnation. They may be chastened of the Lord, but not condemned with the world. Now this arises from their being in Christ Jesus, by virtue of their union with Him through faith, they are thus secured. They are in Christ Jesus, as in their city of refuge, and so are protected from the avenger of blood. He is their advocate, and brings them off. There is therefore no condemnation, because they are interested in the satisfaction that Christ, by dying, made to the law. In Christ, God does not only not condemn them, but is well pleased with them, Matthew 17 verse 5. 2. It is the undoubted character of all those who are so in Christ Jesus as to be freed from condemnation that they walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Observe, the character is given from their walk, not from any one particular act, but from their course and way. And the great question is, what is the principle of the walk, the flesh or the spirit, the old or the new nature, corruption or grace? Which of these do we mind, for which of these do we make provision, by which of these are we governed, which of these do we take part with? 2. This great truth, thus laid down, he illustrates in the following verses, and shows how we come by this great privilege, and how we may answer this character. 1. How we come by these privileges the privilege of justification, that there is no condemnation to us the privilege of sanctification, that we walk after the Spirit, and not after the flesh, 
which is no less our privilege than it is our duty. How comes it about? 1. The law could not do it, verse 3. It could neither justify nor sanctify, neither free us from the guilt nor from the power of sin, having not the promises either of pardon or grace. The law made nothing perfect, it was weak. Some attempt the law made towards these blessed ends, but, alas! It was weak, it could not accomplish them, yet that weakness was not through any defect in the law, but through the flesh, through the corruption of human nature, by which we became incapable either of being justified or sanctified by the law. We had become unable to keep the law, and, in case of failure, the law, as a covenant of works, made no provision, and so left us as it found us. Or understand it of the ceremonial law, that was a plaster not wide enough for the wound, it could never take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4. 2. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus does it, verse 2. The covenant of grace made with us in Christ is a treasury of merit and grace, and thence we receive pardon and a new nature, are freed from the law of sin and death, that is, both from the guilt and power of sin from the course of the law, and the dominion of the flesh. We are under another covenant, another master, another husband, under the law of the Spirit, the law that gives the Spirit, spiritual life, to qualify us for eternal. The foundation of this freedom is laid in Christ's undertaking for us, of which he speaks verse 3, God sending his own Son. Observe, when the law failed, God provided another method. Christ comes to do that which the law could not do. Moses brought the children of Israel to the borders of Canaan, and then died, and left them there, but Joshua did that which Moses could not do, and put them in possession of Canaan. Thus what the law could not do Christ did. The best exposition of this verse we have Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 10. To make the sense of the words clear, which in our translation is a little intricate, we may read it thus, with a little transpositioned God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and a sacrifice for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, which the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, etc. Verse 4. Observe. 1. How Christ appeared, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful, for he was holy, harmless, undefiled, but in the likeness of that flesh which was sinful. He took upon him that nature which was corrupt, though perfectly abstracted from the corruptions of it. His being circumcised, redeemed, baptized with John's baptism, he speaks the likeness of sinful flesh. The bitings of the fiery serpents were cured by a serpent of brass, which had the shape, through free from the venom, of the serpents that bit them. It was great condescension that he who was God should be made in the likeness of flesh, but much greater that he who was holy should be made in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, here the best Greek copies place the comma. God sent him, en homoiomati sarkos hamarshas, kaiperi hamarshas in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a sacrifice for sin. The Septuagint call a sacrifice for sin no more than peri hamarshas for sin, so Christ was a sacrifice, he was sent to be so, Hebrews 9 verse 26. 2. What was done by this appearance of his, sin was condemned, that is, God did therein more than ever manifest his hatred of sin, and not only so, but for all that are Christ's both the damning and the domineering power of sin is broken and taken out of the way. He that is condemned can neither accuse nor rule, his testimony is null, and his authority null. Thus by Christ is sin condemned, though it live and remain, its life in the saints is still but like that of a condemned malefactor. It was by the condemning of sin that death was disarmed, and the devil, who had the power of death, destroyed. The condemning of sin saved the sinner from condemnation. 
Christ was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, and, being so made, when he was condemned sin was condemned in the flesh of Christ, condemned in the human nature, so was sanctification made to divine justice, and way made for the salvation of the sinner. 3. The happy effect of this upon us, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Both in our justification and in our sanctification, the righteousness of the law if fulfilled. A righteousness of satisfaction for the breach of the law is fulfilled by the imputation of Christ's complete and perfect righteousness, which answers the utmost demands of the law, as the mercy seat was as long and as broad as the ark. A righteousness of obedience to the commands of the law is fulfilled in us, when by the Spirit the law of love is written upon the heart, and that love is the fulfilling of the law, chapter 13 verse 10. Though the righteousness of the law is not fulfilled by us, yet, blessed be God, it is fulfilled in us, there is that to be found upon and in all true believers which answers the intention of the law. Us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is the description of all those that are interested in this privilege they act from spiritual and not from carnal principles, as for others, the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled upon them in their ruin. Now, 2. Observe how we may answer to this character, verse 5, etc. 1. By looking to our minds. How may we know whether we are after the flesh or after the spirit? By examining what we mind, the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit. Carnal pleasure, worldly profit and honor, the things of sense and time, are the things of the flesh, which unregenerate people mind. The favor of God, the welfare of the soul, the concerns of eternity, are the things of the spirit, which those that are after the spirit do mind. The man is as the mind is. The mind is the forge of thoughts. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he, Proverbs 23 verse 7. Which way do the thoughts move with most pleasure? On what do they dwell with most satisfaction? The mind is the seat of wisdom. Which way go the projects and contrivances? Whether are we more wise for the world or for our souls? Renusi tatiis sarcos they savor, the things of the flesh, so the word is rendered, Matthew 16 verse 23. It is a great matter what our savor is, what truths, what tidings, what comforts, we do most relish, and are most agreeable to us. Now, to caution us against this carnal-mindedness, he shows the great misery and malignity of it, and compares it with the unspeakable excellency and comfort of spiritual-mindedness. 1. It is death, verse 6. It is spiritual death, the certain way to eternal death. It is the death of the soul, for it is its alienation from God, in union and communion with whom the life of the soul consists. A carnal soul is a dead soul, dead as a soul can die. She that liveth in pleasure is dead, 1 Timothy 5 verse 6, not only dead in law and as guilty, but dead in state as carnal. Death includes all misery, carnal souls are miserable souls. But to be spiritually minded, fronma tu numatos a spiritual savor, the wisdom that is from above, a principle of grace, is life and peace, it is the felicity and happiness of the soul. The life of the soul consists in its union with spiritual things by the mind. A sanctified soul is a living soul, and that life is peace, it is a very comfortable life. All the paths of spiritual wisdom are paths of peace. It is life and peace in the other world, as well as in this. Spiritual mindedness is eternal life and peace begun, and an assuring earnest of the perfection of it. 2. It is enmity to God, verse 7, and this is worse than the former. The former speaks the carnal sinner a dead man, which is bad, but this speaks him a devil of a man.
it is not only an enemy, but enmity itself. It is not only the alienation of the soul from God, but the opposition of the soul against God, it rebels against his authority, thwarts his design, opposes his interest, spits in his face, spurns at his bowels. Can there be a greater enmity? An enemy may be reconciled, but enmity cannot. How should this humble us for and warn us against, carnal-mindedness? Shall we harbor and indulge that which is enmity to God our Creator, Owner, Ruler, and Benefactor? To prove this, he urges that it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The holiness of the law of God, and the unholiness of the carnal mind, are as irreconcilable as light and darkness. The carnal man may, by the power of divine grace, be made subject to the law of God, but the carnal mind never can, this must be broken and expelled. See how wretchedly the corrupt will of man is enslaved to sin, as far as the carnal mind prevails, there is no inclination to the law of God, therefore wherever there is a change wrought it is by the power of God's grace, not by the freedom of man's will. Hence he infers, verse 8, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Those that are in a carnal unregenerate state, under the reigning power of sin, cannot do the things that please God, wanting grace, the pleasing principle, and an interest in Christ, the pleasing mediator. The very sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, Proverbs 15 verse 8. Pleasing God is our highest end, of which those that are in the flesh cannot but fall short, they cannot please Him, nay, they cannot but displease Him. We may know our state and character. 2. By inquiring whether we have the Spirit of God and Christ, or not, verse 9 You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This expresses states and conditions of the soul vastly different. All the saints have flesh and spirit in them, but to be in the flesh and to be in the Spirit are contrary. It denotes our being overcome and subdued by one of these principles. As we say, a man is in love, or in drink, that is, overcome by it. Now the great question is whether we are in the flesh or in the Spirit, and how may we come to know it? Why, by inquiring whether the Spirit of God dwell in us. The Spirit dwelling in us is the best evidence of our being in the Spirit, for the indwelling is mutual, 1 John 4 verse 16 dwelleth in God, and God in him. The Spirit visits many that are unregenerate with his motions, which they resist and quench, but in all that are sanctified he dwells, there he resides and rules. He is there as a man at his own house, where he is constant and welcome, and has the dominion. Shall we put this question to our own hearts, who dwells, who rules, who keeps house, here? Which interest has the ascendant? To this he subjoins a general rule of trial, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. To be Christ's, that is, to be a Christian indeed, one of his children, his servants, his friends, in union with him, is a privilege and honor which many pretend to that have no part nor lot in the matter. None are his but those that have his spirit, that is, one, that are spirited as he was spirited are meek, and lowly, and humble, and peaceable, and patient, and charitable, as he was. We cannot tread in his steps unless we have his spirit, the frame and disposition of our souls must be conformable to Christ's pattern. 2. That are actuated and guided by the Holy Spirit of God, as a sanctifier, teacher, and comforter. Having the Spirit of Christ is the same with having the Spirit of God to dwell in us. But those two come much to one, for all that are actuated by the Spirit of God as their rule are conformable to the Spirit of Christ as their pattern. Now this description of the character of those to whom belongs this first privilege of freedom from condemnation is to be applied to all the other privileges that follow. Romans 8 verses 10 to 16
In these verses, the apostle represents two more excellent benefits which belong to true believers. 1. Life. The happiness is not barely a negative happiness, not to be condemned, but it is positive, it is an advancement to a life that will be the unspeakable happiness of the man, verses 10 and 11 if Christ be in you. Observe, if the Spirit be in us, Christ is in us. He dwells in the heart by faith, Ephesians 3 verse 17. Now we are here told what becomes of the bodies and souls of those in whom Christ is. 1. We cannot say but that the body is dead, it is a frail, mortal, dying body, and it will be dead shortly, it is a house of clay, whose foundation is in the dust. The life purchased and promised does not immortalize the body in its present state. It is dead, that is, it is appointed to die, it is under a sentence of death, as we say one that is condemned is a dead man. In the midst of life we are in death, be our bodies ever so strong, and healthful, and handsome, they are as good as dead, Hebrews 11 verse 12, and this because of sin. It is sin that kills the body. This effect the first threatening has, Genesis 3 verse 19 Dust thou art. Methinks, were there no other argument, love to our bodies should make us hate sin, because it is such an enemy to our bodies. The death even of the bodies of the saints is a remaining token of God's displeasure against sin. 2. But the spirit, the precious soul, that is life, it is now spiritually alive, nay, it is life. Grace in the soul is its new nature, the life of the saint lies in the soul, while the life of the sinner goes no further than the body. When the body dies and returns to the dust, the spirit if life, not only living and immortal, but swallowed up of life. Death to the saints is but the freeing of the heaven-born spirit from the clog and load of this body, that it may be fit to partake of eternal life. When Abraham was dead, yet God was the God of Abraham, for even then his spirit was life, Matthew 22 verses 31 and 32. See Psalm 49 verse 15. And this because of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ imputed to them secures the soul, the better part, from death, the righteousness of Christ inherent in them, the renewed image of God upon the soul, preserves it, and, by God's ordination, at death elevates it, and improves it, and makes it meet to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. The eternal life of the soul consists in the vision and fruition of God, and both assimilating, for which the soul is qualified by the righteousness of sanctification. I refer to Psalm 17 verse 15, I will behold thy face in righteousness. 3. There is a life reserved too for the poor body at last, he shall also quicken your mortal bodies, verse 11. The Lord is for the body, and though at death it is cast aside as a despised broken vessel, a vessel in which is no pleasure, yet God will have a desire to the work of his hands, Job 14 verse 15, will remember his covenant with the dust, and will not lose a grain of it but the body shall be reunited to the soul, and clothed with a glory agreeable to it. Vile bodies shall be newly fashioned, Philippians 3.21, 1 Corinthians 15.42. Two great assurances of the resurrection of the body are mentioned. 1. The resurrection of Christ, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken. Christ rose as the head, and firstfruits, and forerunner of all the saints, 1 Corinthians 15.20. The body of Christ lay in the grave, under the sin of all the elect imputed, and broke through it. O grave, then, where is thy victory? It is in the virtue of Christ's resurrection that we shall rise. 2. The indwelling of the Spirit. The same Spirit that riseth the soul now will raise the body shortly, by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. The bodies of the saints are the temples of the Holy Ghost, 
1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, and 6 verse 19. Now, though these temples may be suffered for a while to lie in ruins, yet they shall be rebuilt. The tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, shall be repaired, whatever great mountains may be in the way. The Spirit, breathing upon dead and dry bones, will make them live, and the saints even in their flesh shall see God. Hence the Apostle by the way infers how much it is our duty to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, verses 12 and 13. Let not our life be after the wills and motions of the flesh. Two motives he mentions here. 1. We are not debtors to the flesh, neither by relation, gratitude, nor any other bond or obligation. We owe no suit nor service to our carnal desires, we are indeed bound to clothe, and feed, and take care of the body, as a servant to the soul in the service of God, but no further. We are not debtors to it, the flesh never did us so much kindness as to oblige us to serve it. It is implied that we are debtors to Christ and to the Spirit, there we owe our all, all we have and all we can do, by a thousand bonds and obligations. Being delivered from so great a death by so great a ransom, we are deeply indebted to our Deliverer. See 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20. 2. Consider the consequences, what will be at the end of the way. Here are life and death, blessing and cursing, set before us. If you live after the flesh, you shall die, that is, die eternally. It is the pleasing, and serving, and gratifying, of the flesh, that are the ruin of souls, that is, the second death. Dying indeed is the soul's dying, the death of the saints is, but asleep. But, on the other hand, you shall live, live, and be happy to eternity, that is the true life, if you through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, subdue and keep under all fleshly lusts and affections, deny yourselves in the pleasing and humoring of the body, and this through the Spirit, we cannot do it without the Spirit working it in us, and the Spirit will not do it without our doing our endeavor. So that in a word we are put upon this dilemma, either to displease the body or destroy the soul. 2. The spirit of adoption is another privilege belonging to those that are in Christ Jesus, verses 14-16. 1. All that are Christ's are taken into the relation of children to God, verse 14. Observe. 1. Their property, they are led by the Spirit of God, as a scholar in his learning is led by his tutor, as a traveler in his journey is led by his guide, as a soldier in his engagements is led by his captain, not driven as beasts, but led as rational creatures, drawn with the cords of a man in the bands of love. It is the undoubted character of all true believers that they are led by the Spirit of God. Having submitted themselves in believing to his guidance, they do in their obedience follow that guidance, and are sweetly led into all truth and all duty. 2. Their privilege, they are the sons of God, received into the number of God's children by adoption, owned and loved by Him as His children. 2. And those that are the sons of God have the Spirit. 1. To work in them the disposition of children. 1. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, verse 15. Understand it. First, of that spirit of bondage which the Old Testament church was under, by reason of the darkness and terror of that dispensation. The veil signified bondage, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 15. Compare verse 17. The spirit of adoption was not then so plentifully poured out as now, for the law opened the wound, but little of the remedy. Now you are not under that dispensation, you have not received that spirit.
secondly, of that spirit of bondage which many of the saints themselves were under at their conversion, under the convictions of sin and wrath set home by the Spirit, as those in Acts 2 verse 37, the jailer, Acts 16 verse 30, Paul, Acts 9 verse 6. Then the Spirit himself was to the saints a spirit of bondage, but, says the Apostle, with you this is over. God as a judge, says Dr. Manton, by the spirit of bondage, sends us to Christ as mediator, and Christ as mediator, by the spirit of adoption, sends us back again to God as a father. Though a child of God may come under fear of bondage again, and may be questioning his sonship, yet the blessed spirit is not again a spirit of bondage, for then he would witness an untruth. 2. But you have received the spirit of adoption. Men may give a charter of adoption, but it is God's prerogative, when he adopts, to give a spirit of adoption the nature of children. The spirit of adoption works in the children of God a filial love to God as a father, a delight in him, and a dependence upon him as a father. A sanctified soul bears the image of God, as the child bears the image of the father. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Praying is here called crying, which is not only an earnest, but a natural expression of desire, children that cannot speak vent their desires by crying. Now, the Spirit teaches us in prayer to come to God as a Father, with a holy humble confidence, emboldening the soul in that duty. Abba, Father. Abba is a Syriac word signifying Father or my Father, Padear, a Greek word, and why both, Abba, Father? Because Christ said so in prayer, Mark 14 verse 36, Abba, Father, and we have received the Spirit of the Son. It denotes an affectionate endearing importunity, and a believing stress laid upon the relation. Little children, begging of their parents, can say little but father, father, and that is rhetoric enough. It also denotes that the adoption is common both to Jews and Gentiles, the Jews call him Abba in their language, the Greeks may call him Patear in their language, for in Christ Jesus there is neither Greek nor Jew. 2. To witness to the relation of children, verse 16. The former is the work of the Spirit as a sanctifier, this as a comforter. Beareth witness with our spirit. Many a man has the witness of his own spirit to the goodness of his state who is not the concurring testimony of the spirit. Many speak peace to themselves to whom the God of heaven does not speak peace. But those that are sanctified have God's spirit witnessing with their spirits, which is to be understood not of any immediate extraordinary revelation, but an ordinary work of the spirit, in and by the means of comfort, speaking peace to the soul. This testimony is always agreeable to the written word, and is therefore always grounded upon sanctification, for the spirit in the heart cannot contradict the spirit in the word. The spirit witnesses to none the privileges of children who have not the nature and disposition of children. Romans 8 verses 17 to 25. In these words, the apostle describes a fourth illustrious branch of the happiness of believers, namely, a title to the future glory. This is fitly annexed to our sonship, for as the adoption of sons entitles us to that glory, so the disposition of sons fits and prepares us for it. If children, then heirs, verse 17. In earthly inheritances this rule does not hold, only the firstborn are heirs, but the church is a church of firstborn, for they are all heirs. Heaven is an inheritance that all the saints are heirs to. They do not come to it as purchasers by any merit or procurement of their own, but as heirs, purely by the act of God, for God makes heirs. The saints are heirs though in this world they are heirs under age, see Galatians 4 verses 1 and 2. Their present state is a state of education and preparation for the inheritance. How comfortable should this be to all the children of God, 
how little soever they have in possession, that, being heirs, they have enough in reversion. But the honor and happiness of an heir lie in the value and worth of that which he is heir to, we read of those that inherit the wind, and therefore we have here an abstract of the premises. 1. Heirs of God. The Lord himself is the portion of the saints' inheritance, Psalm 16 verse 5, a goodly heritage, verse 6. The saints are spiritual priests that have the Lord for their inheritance, Numbers 18 verse 20. The vision of God and the fruition of God make up the inheritance the saints are heirs to. God himself will be with them and will be their God, Revelation 21 verse 3. 2. Joint Heirs with Christ. Christ, as mediator, is said to be the heir of all things, Hebrews 1 verse 2, and true believers, by virtue of their union with him, shall inherit all things, Revelation 21 verse 7. Those that now partake of the Spirit of Christ, as his brethren, shall, as his brethren, partake of his glory, John 17 verse 24, shall sit down with him upon his throne, Revelation 3 verse 21. Lord, what is man, that thou shouldst thus magnify him? Now this future glory is further spoken of as the reward of present sufferings and as the accomplishment of present hopes. 1. As the reward of the saints' present sufferings, and it is a rich reward, if so be that we suffer with him, verse 17, or for as much as we suffer with him. The state of the church in this world always is, but was then especially, an afflicted state, to be a Christian was certainly to be a sufferer. Now, to comfort them in reference to those sufferings, he tells them that they suffered with Christ for his sake, for his honor, and for the testimony of a good conscience, and should be glorified with him. Those that suffered with David in his persecuted state were advanced by him and with him when he came to the crown, see 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. See the gains of suffering for Christ, though we may be losers for him, we shall not, we cannot, be losers by him in the end. This the gospel is filled with the assurances of. Now, that suffering saints may have strong supports and consolations from their hopes of heaven, he holds the balance, verse 18, in a comparison between the two, which is observable. 1. In one scale he puts the sufferings of this present time. The sufferings of the saints are, but sufferings of this present time, strike no deeper than the things of time, last no longer than the present time, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, light affliction, and but for a moment. So that on the sufferings he writes tackle, weighed in the balance, and found light. 2. In the other scale he puts the glory, and finds that a weight, an exceeding and eternal weight, glory that shall be revealed. In our present state we come short, not only in the enjoyment, but in the knowledge of that glory, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, 1 John 3 verse 2 it shall be revealed. It surpasses all that we have yet seen and known, present vouchsafements are sweet and precious, very precious, very sweet, but there is something to come, something behind the curtain, that will outshine all. Shall be revealed in us, not only revealed to us, to be seen, but revealed in us, to be enjoyed. The kingdom of God is within you and will be so to eternity. 3. He concludes the sufferings not worthy to be compared with the glory eukaxia pros te endoxin. They cannot merit that glory, and, if suffering for Christ will not merit, much less will doing. They should not at all deter and frighten us from the diligent and earnest pursuit of that glory. The sufferings are small and short, and concern the body only, but the glory is rich and great, and concerns the soul, and is eternal. This he reckons. I reckon logizomai. It is not a rash and sudden determination, but the product of a very serious and deliberate consideration. He had reasoned the case within himself, 
weighed the arguments on both sides, and thus at last resolves the point. Oh how vastly different is the sentence of the word from the sentiment of the world concerning the sufferings of this present time. I reckon, as an arithmetician that is balancing an account. He first sums up what is dispersed for Christ in the sufferings of this present time, and finds they come to very little, he then sums up what is secured to us by Christ in the glory that shall be revealed, and this he finds to be an infinite sum, transcending all conception, the disbursement abundantly made up and the losses infinitely countervailed. And who would be afraid then to suffer for Christ, who as he is beforehand with us in suffering, so he will not be behindhand with us in recompense? Now Paul was as competent a judge of this point as ever any mere man was. He could reckon not by art only, but by experience, for he knew both. He knew what the sufferings of this present time were, see 2 Corinthians 11 verses 23-28. He knew what the glory of heaven is, see 2 Corinthians 12 verses 3 and 4. And, upon the view of both, he gives this judgment here. There is nothing like a believing view of the glory which shall be revealed to support and bear up the Spirit under all the sufferings of this present time. The reproach of Christ appears riches to those who have respect to the recompense of reward, Hebrews 11 verse 26. 2. As the accomplishment of the saints' present hopes and expectations, verse 19, etc. As the saints are suffering for it, so they are waiting for it. Heaven is therefore sure, for God by His Spirit would not raise and encourage those hopes only to defeat and disappoint them. He will establish that word unto his servants on which he has caused them to hope, Psalm 119 verse 49, and heaven is therefore sweet, for, if hope deferred makes the heart sick, surely when the desire comes it will be a tree of life, Proverbs 13 verse 12. Now he observes an expectation of this glory. 1. In the creatures verses 19 to 22. That must needs be a great, a transcendent glory, which all the creatures are so earnestly expecting and longing for. This observation in these verses has some difficulty in it, which puzzles interpreters a little, and the more because it is a remark not made in any other scripture, with which it might be compared. By the creature here we understand, not as some do the Gentile world, and their expectation of Christ and the gospel, which is an exposition very foreign and forced, but the whole frame of nature, especially that of this lower world the whole creation, the compages of inanimate and sensible creatures, which, because of their harmony and mutual dependence, and because they all constitute and make up one world, are spoken of in the singular number as the creature. The sense of the apostle in these four verses we may take in the following observations. 1. That there is a present vanity to which the creature, by reason of the sin of man, is made subject, verse 20. When man sinned, the ground was cursed for man's sake, and with it all the creatures, especially of this lower world, where our acquaintance lies, became subject to that curse, became mutable and mortal. Under the bondage of corruption, verse 21. There is an impurity, deformity, and infirmity, which the creature has contracted by the fall of man, the creation is sullied and stained, much of the beauty of the world gone. There is an enmity of one creature to another, they are all subject to continual alteration and decay of the individuals, liable to the strokes of God's judgments upon man. When the world was drowned, and almost all the creatures in it, surely then it was subject to vanity indeed. The whole species of creatures is designed for, and is hastening to, a total dissolution by fire. And it is not the least part of their vanity and bondage that they are used, or abused rather, by men as instruments of sin. The creatures are often abused to the dishonor of their creator, the hurt of his children, or the service of his enemies. 
When the creatures are made the food and fuel of our lusts, they are subject to vanity, they are captivated by the law of sin. And this not willingly, not of their own choice. All the creatures desire their own perfection and consummation, when they are made instruments of sin it is not willingly. Or, they are thus captivated, not for any sin of their own, which they had committed, but for man's sin, by reason of him who hath subjected the same. Adam did it meritoriously, the creatures being delivered to him, when he by sin delivered himself he delivered them likewise into the bondage of corruption. God did it judicially, he passed a sentence upon the creatures for the sin of man, by which they became subject. And this yoke, poor creatures, they bear in hope that it will not be so always. E.P. Elpidai Hodikai, etc. in hope that the creature itself, so many Greek copies, join the words. We have reason to pity the poor creatures that for our sin have become subject to vanity. 2. That the creatures groan and travail in pain together under this vanity and corruption, verse 22. It is a figurative expression. Sin is a burden to the whole creation, the sin of the Jews, in crucifying Christ, set the earth a-quaking under them. The idols were a burden to the weary beast, Isaiah 46 verse 1. There is a general outcry of the whole creation against the sin of man, the stone creeth out of the wall, Habakkuk 2 verse 11, the land cries, Job 31 verse 38. 3. That the creature, that is now thus burdened, shall, at the time of the restitution of all things, be delivered from this bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God, verse 21, they shall no more be subject to vanity and corruption, and the other fruits of the curse, but, on the contrary, this lower world shall be renewed, when there will be new heavens there will be a new earth, 2 Peter 3 verse 13, Revelation 21 verse 1, and there shall be a glory conferred upon all the creatures, which shall be, in the proportion of their natures, as suitable and as great an advancement as the glory of the children of God shall be to them. The fire at the last day shall be a refining, not a destroying annihilating fire. What becomes of the souls of brutes, that go downwards, none can tell. But it should seem by the scripture that there will be some kind of restoration of them. And if it be objected, what use will they be of to glorified saints? We may suppose them of as much use as they were to Adam in innocency, and if it be only to illustrate the wisdom, power, and goodness of their Creator, that is enough. Compare with this Psalm 96 verses 10 to 13, and 98 verses 7 to 9. Let the heavens rejoice before the Lord, for He cometh. 4. That the creature doth therefore earnestly expect and wait for the manifestation of the children of God, verse 19. Observe, at the second coming of Christ, there will be a manifestation of the children of God. Now the saints are God's hidden ones, the wheat seems lost in a heap of chaff, but then they shall be manifested. It does not yet appear what we shall be, 1 John 3 verse 2, but then the glory shall be revealed. The children of God shall appear in their own colors. And this redemption of the creature is reserved till then, for, as it was with man and for man that they fell under the curse, so with man and for man they shall be delivered. All the curse and filth that now adhere to the creature shall be done away then when those that have suffered with Christ upon earth shall reign with him upon the earth. This the whole creation looks and longs for, and it may serve as a reason why now a good man should be merciful to his beast. 2. In the saints, who are new creatures, verses 23-25. Observe. 1. The grounds of this expectation in the saints. It is our having received the first fruits of the Spirit, which both quickens our desires and encourages our hopes, and both ways raises our expectations. The first fruits did both sanctify and ensure the lump, 
grace is the first fruits of glory, it is glory begun. We, having received such clusters in this wilderness, cannot but long for the full vintage in the heavenly Canaan. Not only they not only the creatures which are not capable of such a happiness as the first fruits of the Spirit, but even we, who have such present rich receivings, cannot but long for something more and greater. In having the first fruits of the Spirit we have that which is very precious, but we have not all we would have. We groan within ourselves, which denotes the strength and secrecy of these desires, not making a loud noise, as the hypocrites howling upon the bed for corn and wine, but with silent groans, which pierce heaven soonest of all. Or, we groan among ourselves. It is the unanimous vote, the joint desire, of the whole church, all agree in this, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The groaning denotes a very earnest and importunate desire, the soul pained with the delay. Present receivings and comforts are consistent with a great many groans, not as the pangs of one dying, but as the throes of a woman in travail groans that are symptoms of life, not of death. 2. The object of this expectation. What is it we are thus desiring and waiting for? What would we have? The adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Though the soul be the principal part of the man, yet the Lord has declared himself for the body also, and has provided a great deal of honor and happiness for the body. The resurrection is here called the redemption of the body. It shall then be rescued from the power of death and the grave, and the bondage of corruption, and, though a vile body, yet it shall be refined and beautified, and made like that glorious body of Christ, Philippians 3.21, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42. This is called the adoption. 1. It is the adoption manifested before all the world, angels, and men. Now are we the sons of God, but it does not yet appear, the honor is now clouded, but then God will publicly own all his children. The deed of adoption, which is now written, signed, and sealed, will then be recognized, proclaimed, and published. As Christ was, so the saints will be, declared to be the sons of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead, chapter 1 verse 4. It will then be put past dispute. 2. It is the adoption perfected and completed. The children of God have bodies as well as souls, and, till those bodies are brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God, the adoption is not perfect. But then it will be complete, when the captain of our salvation shall bring the many sons to glory, Hebrews 2 verse 10. This is that which we expect, in hope of which our flesh rests, Psalm 16 verses 9 and 10. All the days of our appointed time we are waiting, till this change shall come, when he shall call, and we shall answer, and he will have a desire to the work of his hands, Job. 14 14, 15. 3. The agreeableness of this to our present state, verses 24 and 25. Our happiness is not in present possession, we are saved by hope. In this, as in other things, God hath made our present state a state of trial and probation that our reward is out of sight. Those that will deal with God must deal upon trust. It is acknowledged that one of the principal graces of a Christian is hope, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 13, which necessarily implies a good thing to come, which is the object of that hope. Faith respects the promise, hope the thing promised. Faith is the evidence, hope the expectation, of things not seen. Faith is the mother of hope. We do with patience wait. In hoping for this glory we have need of patience, to bear the sufferings we meet with in the way to it and the delays of it. Our way is rough and long, but he that shall come will come, and will not tarry, and therefore, though we seem to tarry, it becomes us to wait for him. Romans 8 verses 26-28
the apostle here suggests two privileges more to which true Christians are entitled. 1. The help of the Spirit in prayer. While we are in this world, hoping and waiting for what we see not, we must be praying. Hope supposes desire, and that desire offered up to God is prayer, we groan. Now observe. 1. Our weakness in prayer, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. 1. As to the matter of our requests, we know not what to ask. We are not competent judges of our own condition. Who knows what is good for a man in this life? Ecclesiastes 6 verse 12. We are short-sighted and very much biased in favor of the flesh and apt to separate the end from the way. You know not what you ask, Matthew 20 verse 22. We are like foolish children that are ready to cry for fruit before it is ripe and fit for them, see Luke 9 verses 54 and 55. 2. As to the manner, we know not how to pray as we ought. It is not enough that we do that which is good, but we must do it well, seek in a due order, and here we are often at a loss graces are weak, affections cold, thoughts wandering, and it is not always easy to find the heart to pray, 2 Samuel 7 verse 27. The apostle speaks of this in the first person, we know not. He puts himself among the rest. Folly, and weakness, and distraction in prayer, are what all the saints are complaining of. If so great a saint as Paul knew not what to pray for, what little reason have we to go forth about that duty in our own strength? 2. The assistances which the Spirit gives us in that duty. He helps our infirmities, meant especially of our praying infirmities, which most easily beset us in that duty, against which the Spirit helps. The Spirit in the world helps, many rules and promises there are in the Word for our help. The Spirit in the heart helps, dwelling in us, working in us, as a spirit of grace and supplication, especially with respect to the infirmities we are under when we are in a suffering state, when our faith is most apt to fail, for this end the Holy Ghost was poured out. Helpeth, Sanatilam Banatai heaves with us, over against us, helps as we help one that would lift up a burden, by lifting over against him at the other end helps with us, that is, with us doing our endeavor, putting forth the strength we have. We must not sit still and expect that the Spirit should do all, when the Spirit goes before us we must bestir ourselves. We cannot without God, and He will not without us. What help? Why, the Spirit itself makes intercession for us, dictates our requests, indites our petitions, draws up our plea for us. Christ intercedes for us in heaven, the Spirit intercedes for us in our hearts, so graciously has God provided for the encouragement of the praying remnant. The Spirit, as an enlightening Spirit, teaches us what to pray for, as a sanctifying Spirit works and excites praying graces, as a comforting Spirit silences our fears, and helps us over all our discouragements. The Holy Spirit is the spring of all our desires and breathings towards God. Now this intercession which the Spirit makes is 1. With groanings that cannot be uttered. The strength and fervency of those desires which the Holy Spirit works are hereby intimated. There may be praying in the Spirit where there is not a word spoken, as Moses prayed, Exodus 14 verse 15, and Hannah, 1 Samuel 1 verse 13. It is not the rhetoric and eloquence, but the faith and fervency of our prayers, that the Spirit works, as an intercessor, in us. Cannot be uttered, they are so confused, the soul is in such a hurry with temptations and troubles, we know not what to say, nor how to express ourselves. Here is the Spirit interceding with groans that cannot be uttered. When we can but cry, Abba, Father, and refer ourselves to Him with a holy humble boldness, this is the work of the Spirit. 2. According to the will of God, verse 27. 
The spirit in the heart never contradicts the spirit in the word. Those desires that are contrary to the will of God do not come from the spirit. The spirit interceding in us evermore melts our wills into the will of God. Not as I will, but as thou wilt. 3. The sure success of these intercessions, he that searches the heart knoweth what is the mind of the spirit, verse 27. To a hypocrite, all whose religion lies in his tongue, nothing is more dreadful than that God searches the heart and sees through all his disguises. To a sincere Christian, who makes heart work of his duty, nothing is more comfortable than that God searches the heart, for then he will hear and answer those desires which we want words to express. He knows what we have need of before we ask, Matthew 6 verse 8. He knows what is the mind of his own spirit in us. And, as he always hears the Son interceding for us, so he always hears the Spirit interceding in us, because his intercession is according to the will of God. What could have been done more for the comfort of the Lord's people in all their addresses to God? Christ had said, Whatever you ask the Father according to his will he will give it you. But how shall we learn to ask according to his will? Why, the Spirit will teach us that. Therefore it is that the seed of Jacob never seek in vain. 2. The concurrence of all providences for the good of those that are Christ's, verse 28. It might be objected that, notwithstanding all these privileges, we see believers compassed about with manifold afflictions, though the Spirit makes intercession for them, yet their troubles are continued. It is very true, but in this the Spirit's intercession is always effectual, that, however it goes with them, all this is working together for their good. Observe here. 1. The character of the saints who are interested in this privilege, they are here described by such properties as are common to all that are truly sanctified. 1. They love God. This includes all the outgoings of the soul's affections towards God as the chief good and highest end. It is our love to God that makes every providence sweet and therefore profitable. Those that love God make the best of all He does and take all in good part. 2. They are the called according to His purpose, effectually called according to the eternal purpose. The call is effectual, not according to any merit or desert of ours, but according to God's own gracious purpose. 2. The privilege of the saints, that all things work together for good to them, that is, all the providences of God that concern them. All that God performs He performs for them, Psalm 57 verse 2. Their sins are not of his performing, therefore not intended here, though his permitting sin is made to work for their good, 2 Chronicles 32 verse 31. But all the providences of God are theirs merciful providences, afflicting providences, personal, public. They are all for good, perhaps for temporal good, as Joseph's troubles, at least, for spiritual and eternal good. That is good for them which does their souls good. Either directly or indirectly, every providence has a tendency to the spiritual good of those that love God, breaking them off from sin, bringing them nearer to God, weaning them from the world, fitting them for heaven. Work together. They work, as physic works upon the body, various ways, according to the intention of the physician, but all for the patient's good. They work together, as several ingredients in a medicine concur to answer the intention. God hath set the one over against the other, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14 Synergi, a very singular, with a noun plural, denoting the harmony of providence and its uniform designs, all the wheels as one wheel, Ezekiel 10 verse 13. He worketh all things together for good, so some read it. It is not from any specific quality in the providences themselves, 
but from the power and grace of God working in, with, and by, these providences. All this we know know it for a certainty, from the word of God, from our own experience, and from the experience of all the saints. Romans 8 verses 29-30 The Apostle, having reckoned up so many ingredients of the happiness of true believers, comes here to represent the ground of them all, which he lays in predestination. These precious privileges are conveyed to us by the charter of the covenant, but they are founded in the counsel of God, which infallibly secures the event. That Jesus Christ, the purchaser, might not labor in vain, nor spend his strength and life for naught and in vain, there is a remnant given him, a seed that he shall see, so that the good pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. For the explication of this he here sets before us the order of the causes of our salvation, a golden chain, which cannot be broken. There are four links of it. 1. Whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. All that God designed for glory and happiness as the end he decreed to grace and holiness as the way. Not, whom he did foreknow to be holy those he predestinated to be so. The counsels and decrees of God do not truckle to the frail and fickle will of men, no, God's foreknowledge of the saints is the same with that everlasting love wherewith he is said to have loved them, Jeremiah 31 verse 3. God's knowing his people is the same with his owning them, Psalm 1 verse 6, John 10 verse 14, 2 Timothy 2 verse 19. See chapter 11 verse 2. Words of knowledge often in scripture denote affection, so here, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, 1 Peter 1 verse 2. And the same word is rendered foreordained, 1 Peter 1 verse 20. Whom he did foreknow, that is, whom he designed for his friends and favorites. I know thee by name, said God to Moses, Exodus 33 verse 12. Now those whom God thus foreknew he did predestinate to be conformed to Christ. 1. Holiness consists in our conformity to the image of Christ. This takes in the whole of sanctification, of which Christ is the great pattern and sampler. To be spirited as Christ was, to walk and live as Christ did, to bear our sufferings patiently as Christ did. Christ is the express image of his Father, and the saints are conformed to the image of Christ. Thus it is by the mediation and interposal of Christ that we have God's love restored to us and God's likeness renewed upon us, in which two things consists the happiness of man. 2. All that God hath from eternity foreknown with favor he hath predestinated to this conformity. It is not we that can conform ourselves to Christ. Our giving ourselves to Christ takes rise in God's giving us to him, and, in giving us to him, he predestinated us to be conformable to his image. It is a mere cavil therefore to call the doctrine of election a licentious doctrine, and to argue that it gives encouragement to sin, as if the end were separated from the way and happiness from holiness. None can know their election but by their conformity to the image of Christ, for all that are chosen are chosen to sanctification, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, and surely it cannot be a temptation to any to be conformed to the world to believe that they were predestinated to be conformed to Christ. 3. That which is herein chiefly designed is the honor of Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that is, that Christ might have the honor of being the great pattern, as well as the great prince, and in this, as in other things, might have preeminence. It was in the firstborn that all the children were dedicated to God under the law. The firstborn was the head of the family, on whom all the rest did depend, now in the family of the saints Christ must have the honor of being the firstborn. And blessed be God that there are many brethren, though they seem but a few in one place at one time, yet, when they come all together, they will be a great many. 
There is, therefore, a certain number predestinated, that the end of Christ's undertaking might be infallibly secured. Had the event been left at uncertainties in the divine counsels, to depend upon the contingent turn of man's will, Christ might have been the firstborn among but few or no brethren a captain without soldiers and a prince without subjects to prevent which, and to secure to him many brethren, the decree is absolute, the thing ascertained, that he might be sure to see his seed, there is a remnant predestinated to be conformed to his image, which decree will certainly have its accomplishment in the holiness and happiness of that chosen race, and so, in spite of all the opposition of the powers of darkness, Christ will be the firstborn among many, very many brethren. 2. Whom he did predestine at those he also called, not only with the external call, so many are called that were not chosen, Matthew 20 verse 16, 22 14, but with the internal and effectual call. The former comes to the ear only, but this to the heart. All that God did from eternity predestinate to grace and glory he does, in the fullness of time, effectually call. The call is then effectual when we come at the call, and we then come at the call when the Spirit draws us, convinces the conscience of guilt and wrath, enlightens the understanding, bows the will, persuades and enables us to embrace Christ in the promises, makes us willing in the day of his power. It is an effectual call from self and earth to God and Christ and heaven as our end from sin and vanity to grace and holiness and seriousness as our way. This is the gospel call. Them he called, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, we are called to that to which we were chosen. So that the only way to make our election sure is to make sure our calling, 2 Peter 1 verse 10. 3. Whom he called those he also justified. All that are effectually called are justified, absolved from guilt, and accepted as righteous through Jesus Christ. They are recti and curiorite in court, no sin that ever they have been guilty of shall come against them, to condemn them. The book is crossed, the bond cancelled, the judgment vacated, the attainder reversed, and they are no longer dealt with as criminals, but owned and loved as friends and favorites. Blessed is the man whose iniquity is thus forgiven. None are thus justified, but those that are effectually called. Those that stand it out against the gospel call abide under guilt and wrath. For, whom he justified those he also glorified. The power of corruption being broken in effectual calling, and the guilt of sin removed in justification, all that which hinders is taken out of the way, and nothing can come between that soul and glory. Observe, it is spoken of as a thing done, he glorified, because of the certainty of it, he hath saved us, and called us with a holy calling. In the eternal glorification of all the elect, God's design of love has its full accomplishment. This was what he aimed at all along to bring them to heaven. Nothing less than that glory would make up the fullness of his covenant relation to them as God, and therefore, in all he does for them, and in them, he has this in his eye. Are they chosen? It is to salvation. Called? It is to his kingdom and glory. Begotten again? it is to an inheritance incorruptible. Afflicted, it is to work for them this exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Observe, the author of all these is the same. It is God himself that predestinated, calleth, justifieth, glorifieth, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. Created wills are so very fickle, and created powers so very feeble, that, if any of these did depend upon the creature, the whole would shake. But God himself hath undertaken the doing of it from first to last, that we might abide in a constant dependence upon him and subjection to him, and ascribe all the praise to him that every crown may be cast before the throne. This is a mighty encouragement to our faith and hope, 
for, as for God, his way, his work, is perfect. He that hath laid the foundation will build upon it, and the topstone will at length be brought forth with shoutings, and it will be our eternal work to cry, Grace, grace to it. Romans 8 verses 31-39 The Apostle closes this excellent discourse upon the privileges of believers with a holy triumph, in the name of all the saints. Having largely set forth the mystery of God's love to us in Christ, and the exceedingly great and precious privileges we enjoy by Him, he concludes like an orator, What shall we then say to these things? What use shall we make of all that has been said? He speaks as one amazed and swallowed up with the contemplation and admiration of it, wondering at the height and depth, and length and breadth, of the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. The more we know of other things the less we wonder at them, but the further we are led into an acquaintance with gospel mysteries the more we are affected with the admiration of them. If Paul was at a loss what to say to these things, no marvel if we be. And what does he say? Why, if ever Paul rode in a triumphant chariot on this side of heaven, here it was, with such a holy height and bravery of spirit, with such a fluency and copiousness of expression, does he here comfort himself and all the people of God, upon the consideration of these privileges? In general, he here makes a challenge, throws down the gauntlet, as it were, dares all the enemies of the saints to do their worst, if God be for us, who can be against us? The ground of the challenge is God's being for us, in this he sums up all our privileges. This includes all, that God is for us, not only reconciled to us, and so not against us, but in covenant with us, and so engaged for us all his attributes for us, his promises for us. All that he is, and has, and does, is for his people. He performs all things for them. He is for them, even when he seems to act against them. And, if so, who can be against us, so as to prevail against us, so as to hinder our happiness? Be they ever so great and strong, ever so many, ever so might, ever so malicious, what can they do? While God is for us, and we keep in his love, we may with a holy boldness defy all the powers of darkness. Let Satan do his worst, he is chained, let the world do its worst, it is conquered, principalities and powers are spoiled and disarmed, and triumphed over, in the cross of Christ. Who then dares fight against us, while God himself is fighting for us? And this we say to these things, this is the inference we draw from these premises. More particularly. 1. We have supplies ready in all our wants, verse 32 He that spared, etc. Who can be against us, to strip us, to deprive us of our comforts? Who can cut off our streams, while we have a fountain to go to? 1. Observe what God has done for us, on which our hopes are built, He spared not His own Son. When He was to undertake our salvation, the Father was willing to part with Him, did not think Him too precious a gift to bestow for the salvation of poor souls, now we may know that He loves us, in that He hath not withheld His Son, His own Son, His only Son, from us, as He said of Abraham, Genesis 22 verse 12. If nothing less will save man, rather than man shall perish let him go, though it were out of his bosom. Thus did He deliver Him up for us all, that is, for all the elect, for us all, not only for our good, but in our stead, as a sacrifice of atonement to be a propitiation for sin. When He had undertaken it, He did not spare Him. Though He was His own Son, yet, being made sin for us, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Ukephizadohi did not abate Him a farthing of that great debt, but charged it home. Awake, O sword! He did not spare His own Son that served Him, that He might spare us, though we have done Him so much disservice. 2. What we may therefore expect He will do, He will with Him freely give us all things. 
1. It is implied that he will give us Christ, for other things are bestowed with him, not only with him given for us, but with him given to us. He that put himself to so much charge to make the purchase for us surely will not hesitate at making the application to us. 2. He will with him freely give us all things, all things that he sees to be needful and necessary for us, all good things, and more we should not desire, Psalm 34 verse 10. An infinite wisdom shall be the judge whether it be good for us and needful for us or no. Freely give freely, without reluctancy, he is ready to give, meets us with his favors, and freely, without recompense, without money, and without price. How shall he not? Can it be imagined that he should do the greater and not do the less? That he should give so great a gift for us when we were enemies, and should deny us any good thing, now that through him we are friends and children? Thus may we by faith argue against our fears of want. He that hath prepared a crown and kingdom for us will be sure to give us enough to bear our charges in the way to it. He that hath designed us for the inheritance of sons when we come to age will not let us want necessaries in the meantime. 2. We have an answer ready to all accusations and a security against all condemnations, verses 33 and 34 Who shall lay anything? Doth the law accuse them? Do their own consciences accuse them? Is the devil, the accuser of the brethren, accusing them before our God day and night? This is enough to answer all those accusations, it is God that justifieth. Men may justify themselves, as the Pharisees did, and yet the accusations may be in full force against them, but, if God justifies, this answers all. He is the judge, the king, the party offended, and his judgment is according to truth, and sooner or later all the world will be brought to be of his mind so that we may challenge all our accusers to come and put in their charge. This overthrows them all, it is God, the righteous faithful God, that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Though they cannot make good the charge yet they will be ready to condemn, but we have a plea ready to move an arrest of judgment, a plea which cannot be overruled. It is Christ that died, etc. It is by virtue of our interest in Christ, our relation to him, and our union with him, that we are thus secured. 1. His death, it is Christ that died. By the merit of his death he paid our debt, and the surety's payment is a good plea to an action of debt. It is Christ, an able all-sufficient Savior. 2. His resurrection, yeah, rather, that has risen again. This is a much greater encouragement, for it is a convincing evidence that divine justice was satisfied by the merit of his death. His resurrection was his acquittance, it was a legal discharge. Therefore the Apostle mentions it with a yeah, rather. If he had died, and not risen again, we had been where we were. 3. His sitting at the right hand of God, he is even at the right hand of God a further evidence that he has done his work, and a mighty encouragement to us in reference to all accusations, that we have a friend, such a friend, in court. At the right hand of God, which denotes that he is ready there always at hand, and that he is ruling there all power is given to him. Our friend is himself the judge. For the intercession which he makes there. He is there, not unconcerned about us, not forgetful of us, but making intercession. He is agent for us there, an advocate for us, to answer all accusations, to put in our plea, and to prosecute it with effect, to appear for us and to present our petitions. And is not this abundant matter for comfort? What shall we say to these things? Is this the manner of men, O Lord God? What room is left for doubting and disquietment? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Some understand the accusation and condemnation here spoken of of that which the suffering saints met with from men.
The primitive Christians had many black crimes laid to their charge heresy, sedition, rebellion, and what not. For these the ruling powers condemned them, but no matter for that, says the Apostle, while we stand right at God's bar it is of no great moment how we stand at men's. To all the hard censures, the malicious calumnies, and the unjust and unrighteous sentences of men, we may with comfort oppose our justification before God through Christ Jesus as that which doth abundantly countervail, 1 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4. 3. We have good assurance of our preservation and continuance in this blessed state, verses 35 to 39. The fears of the saints lest they should lose their hold of Christ are often very discouraging and disquieting, and create them a great deal of disturbance, but here is that which may silence their fears, and still such storms, that nothing can separate them. We have here from the Apostle. 1. A daring challenge to all the enemies of the saints to separate them, if they could, from the love of Christ. Who shall? None shall, verses 35-37. God having manifested His love in giving His own Son for us, and not hesitating at that, can we imagine that anything else should divert or dissolve that love? Observe here. 1. The present calamities of Christ's beloved ones suppose that they meet with tribulation on all hands, are in distress, know not which way to look for any succor and relief in this world, are followed with persecution from an angry malicious world that always hated those whom Christ loved, pinched with famine, and starved with nakedness, when stripped of all creature comforts, exposed to the greatest perils, the sword of the magistrate drawn against them, ready to be sheathed in their bowels, bathed in their blood. Can a case be supposed more black and dismal? It is illustrated, verse 36, by a passage quoted from Psalm 44 verse 22, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, which intimates that we are not to think strange, no not concerning the fiery bloody trial. We see the Old Testament saints had the same lot, so persecuted they the prophets that were before us. Killed all the day long, that is, continually exposed to and expecting the fatal stroke. There is still every day, and all the day long, one or other of the people of God bleeding and dying under the rage of persecuting enemies. Accounted as sheep for the slaughter, they make no more of killing a Christian than of butchering a sheep. Sheep are killed, not because they are hurtful while they live, but because they are useful when they are dead. They kill the Christians to please themselves, to be food to their malice. They eat up my people as they eat bread, Psalm 14 verse 4. 2. The inability of all these things to separate us from the love of Christ. Shall they, can they, do it? No, by no means. All this will not cut the bond of love and friendship that is between Christ and true believers. 1. Christ doth not, will not, love us the less for all this. All these troubles are very consistent with the strong and constant love of the Lord Jesus. They are neither a cause nor an evidence of the abatement of His love. When Paul was whipped, and beaten, and imprisoned, and stoned, did Christ love him ever the less? Were his favors intermitted? His smiles any whit suspended? His visits more shy? By no means, but the contrary. These things separate us from the love of other friends. When Paul was brought before Nero all men forsook him, but then the Lord stood by him, 2 Timothy 4 verses 16 and 17. Whatever persecuting enemies may rob us of, they cannot rob us of the love of Christ, they cannot intercept his love tokens, they cannot interrupt nor exclude his visits, and therefore, let them do their worst, they cannot make a true believer miserable. 2. We do not, will not, love him the less for this, and that for this reason, because we do not think that he loves us the less. 
Charity thinks no evil, entertains no misgiving thoughts, makes no hard conclusions, no unkind constructions, takes all in good part that comes from love. A true Christian loves Christ nevertheless though he suffer for him, thinks never the worse of Christ through he lose all for him. 3. The triumph of believers in this, verse 37 Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. 1. We are conquerors, though killed all the day long, yet conquerors. A strange way of conquering, but it was Christ's way, thus he triumphed over principalities and powers in his cross. It is a surer and a nobler way of conquest by faith and patience than by fire and sword. The enemies have sometimes confessed themselves baffled and overcome by the invincible courage and constancy of the martyrs, who thus overcame the most victorious princes by not loving their lives to the death, Revelation 12 verse 11. 2. We are more than conquerors. In our patiently bearing these trials we are not only conquerors, but more than conquerors, that is, triumphers. Those are more than conquerors that conquer. First, with little loss. Many conquests are dearly bought, but what do the suffering saints lose? Why, they lose that which the gold loses in the furnace, nothing but the dross. It is no great loss to lose things which are not a body that is of the earth, earthy. Secondly, with great gain. The spoils are exceedingly rich, glory, honor, and peace, a crown of righteousness that fades not away. In this the suffering saints have triumphed, not only have not been separated from the love of Christ, but have been taken into the most sensible endearments and embraces of it. As afflictions abound, consolations much more abound, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5. There is one more than a conqueror, when pressed above measure. He that embraced the stake, and said, Welcome the cross of Christ, welcome everlasting life, he that dated his letter from the delectable orchard of the Leonine prison, he that said, In these flames I feel no more pain than if I were upon a bed of down, she who, a little before her martyrdom, being asked how she did, said, Well and Mary, and going to heaven, those that have gone smiling to the stake, and stood singing in the flames these were more than conquerors. 3. It is only through Christ that loved us, the merit of his death taking the sting out of all these troubles, the spirit of his grace strengthening us, and enabling us to bear them with holy courage and constancy, and coming in with special comforts and supports. Thus we are conquerors, not in our own strength, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We are conquerors by virtue of our interest in Christ's victory. He hath overcome the world for us, John 16 verse 33, both the good things and the evil things of it, so that we have nothing to do but to pursue the victory, and to divide the spoil, and so are more than conquerors. 2. A direct and positive conclusion of the whole matter, for I am persuaded, verses 38 and 39. It denotes a full, and strong, and affectionate persuasion, arising from the experience of the strength and sweetness of the divine love. And here he enumerates all those things which might be supposed likely to separate between Christ and believers, and concludes that it could not be done. 1. Neither death nor life neither the terrors of death on the one hand nor the comforts and pleasures of life on the other, neither the fear of death nor the hope of life. Or, we shall not be separated from that love either in death or in life. 2. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Both the good angels and the bad are called principalities and powers, the good, Ephesians 1 verse 21, Colossians 1 verse 16, the bad, Ephesians 6 verse 12, Colossians 2 verse 15 and neither shall do it. The good angels will not, the bad shall not, and neither can. The good angels are engaged friends, the bad are restrained enemies. 3. Nor things present, 
nor things to come neither the sense of troubles present nor the fear of troubles to come. Time shall not separate us, eternity shall not. Things present separate us from things to come, and things to come separate and cut us off from things present, but neither from the love of Christ, whose favor is twisted in with both present things and things to come. For, nor height, nor depth neither the height of prosperity and preferment, nor the depth of adversity and disgrace, nothing from heaven above, no storms, no tempests, nothing on earth below, no rocks, no seas, no dungeons. 5. Nor any other creature anything that can be named or thought of. It will not, it cannot, separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It cannot cut off or impair our love to God, or God's to us, nothing does it, can do it, but sin. Observe, the love that exists between God and true believers is through Christ. He is the mediator of our love, it is in and through Him that God can love us and that we dare love God. This is the ground of the steadfastness of the love, therefore God rests in His love, Zephaniah 3 verse 17, because Jesus Christ, in whom He loves us, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mr. Hugh Kennedy, an eminent Christian of Ayr, in Scotland, when he was dying, called for a Bible, but, finding his sight gone, he said, Turn me to the eighty of the Romans, and set my finger at these words, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, etc. Now, said he, is my finger upon them? And, when they told him it was, without speaking any more, he said, Now, God be with you, my children, I have breakfasted with you, and shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ this night, and so departed.